So glad you guys are here. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. Hey, Rick. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, we'd love to get to meet you. So glad you're with us this morning. And you're in for a treat today because we have a handheld mic in operation. Very fancy. So here we go. Um, why don't you go ahead and open up your Bible with me to Luke chapter 15, verse 11. That's where we're going to be spending our time together this morning. Gospel of Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Uh, this spring, we spent a few months walking through the letter of First Peter in the New Testament, just a little by little, and that's pretty normal here at FBC. We'll take a book of the Bible, and uh, in our preaching on Sunday, we'll walk right through it. But we finished First Peter, and we'll be back in a book in the fall, but that gives us about eight weeks or so over the summer to do something a little different. And so what we're doing is this series called Parables, where each week we're going to take a look at one of the parables that Jesus taught and dig into it in Scripture. Uh, if you're not familiar with that word, parable, a parable is simply a story, a story taught to illustrate a particular truth. It's a story used to teach us something uh, reality about life, about God, and Jesus used parables all the time. But see, sometimes the Bible is pretty direct. You can read it right on face value and it says, don't kill people. You're like, all right, not a ton of room for interpretation there, pretty straightforward. But other times the Bible is a little more indirect, and we see things like parables, where Jesus says, rather than just directly telling you verbatim what I want to tell you, I'm going to tell you this story. And from that story, you are to glean or gather the truths that Jesus is trying to communicate. And we don't always like that, right? Sometimes we want direct communication, like tell me what you think, tell me what I need to do, I just want to know. Like if you, think about this, if you went home one day to your spouse, maybe a friend of yours, you were in a conversation, and they were visibly upset, visibly upset, and you asked them about it. You said, what's wrong? And they started by saying, well, honey, there was a man who had two cows. <laughs> and the second cow was fed every other day, and the first cow got a garment of silk to wear around in the evenings. You'd say, whoa, whoa, whoa just, can you just tell me what, what's wrong? <laughs> I don't need the story, right? But parables, stories, make us work a little harder. They make us chew on these concepts and, and think about really what God is trying to communicate, what Jesus is trying to get across to us. And so that's a bit of the work ahead for us in this series because Jesus used these parables often to help us change the way we think about God and about life and about people and what it means to relate to God. And so we're just going to walk through those this summer. And we're starting this morning in Luke chapter 15, verse 11, with probably the most well-known, well-loved parable of them all. The parable traditionally referred to as the parable of the prodigal son, about a lost son returning home to his father. You know, if I had to pick just one parable, just one story to communicate to you that shows the heart of God, that shows what Christianity is really all about. If we were to sit down and have that conversation, give me one chance to kind of tell you who God is, I would probably turn to this parable, to Luke chapter 15, because I feel like it gives us such a clear 
picture of who God is and his heart for us. It's actually so rich that we're going to spend three weeks in this one parable, and then we'll be off to other ones. But for the next three weeks, we're going to dig into what God is saying to us here. And as we go, I'm going to be leaning pretty heavily on Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God, if you're familiar with it. If you've read it, an incredible book where he just walks through this text and a lot of the insights and uh, gleanings from this are, are coming from his study and research. And so hats off to Tim Keller as usual. Um, and one word of qualifier, or qualifying word as we get started, it's possible with this parable or with well-known passages of Scripture for us to say, especially if we've been in church for a long time or we've heard this story before, it's easy for us to check out. Say, I've heard this before. I know how the story goes. There's not much here for me. I'll kind of take a little nap or be on my phone or whatever during the service. But if that's you, I would just encourage you to reconsider and come to this text with fresh eyes, with an open heart, realizing that there might be more here for you than you realize. And so, with that, let's jump into the text. Luke 15, verse 11, starts this way. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So as we get started, we see that this parable is full of surprises. It's full of shocking elements and twists and turns, and we see that at the very beginning in verse 12, a man has two sons, and the younger one comes to his father and says, Father, give me my share of the estate. See, when a father, the head of an estate, passed away, his wealth would be passed down to his kids, to his children as an inheritance. But here, the younger son comes to his father and says, I don't want to wait for you to die I want my portion of the wealth now. It's the equivalent of saying, Father, I wish you were dead. I want nothing to do with you. I just want your money, so give it to me. But seriously, this would be incredibly offensive for a son, especially in a first century culture based around honor and shame and honoring elders, honoring parents. For a son to come to his father with this kind of request would be shameful and offensive. But that's not the only shocking part of the beginning of this story. Continues in verse 12. So the father, he divided his property between them. The father obliges. The father grants his request. He responds to such a demand that, again, would have brought shame upon this father, shame upon this family. It would have 
been completely justified for the father to disown his son, to beat his son, but instead he grants his request. Verse 13 continues. Not long after that, the son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Father gives him his portion. The son takes his money, leaves home to a distant land. And the text doesn't tell us what wild living means specifically, but it's probably not PG. It probably doesn't just involve pizza parties with some new friends, maybe doing some arts and crafts, probably a little bit of shady things happening here. And eventually, this brother hits rock bottom, right? Verse 14, he'd spent everything. There was a severe famine in the whole country. He began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Okay, the son runs out of money and he gets a job feeding pigs. Now, in the first century world, for a faithful Jew, pigs were unclean animals. Were unclean. You didn't want to be around them. Didn't want to work with them. And here, now he has a job feeding pigs, even longing to eat the same food that the pigs are eating. So for, again, a good, faithful Jewish family, this would be so outside the bounds of what is appropriate. This son dishonors his father, squanders the family's wealth, and now is hanging out with the pigs, longing to eat their food. It's bad decision after bad decision. Now, it wouldn't be at all unusual here for Jesus' audience, as he's telling this parable, to expect the story to stop and say, all right, that's the moral of the story. Jesus is teaching us a simple life lesson. Honor your parents, obey God, don't fall into sin, and if you do, look what will happen. You shame your parents, you dishonor them, you run away, you engage in reckless living. It's only going to bring shame and hunger and destruction and devastation to your life. So honor your parents. Parents in the room, can I get an amen? All right. Amen. You're elbowing maybe your son or daughter if they're next to you, saying, listen to the preacher, man. Listen to Jesus. But those things might be true. But that's not the main point Jesus is trying to make here. That's not the point of the story. He continues in verse 17. When he came to his senses, this is the younger brother, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and went to his father. The younger son reaches the end of his rope and he makes a decision. I'm going to go home. I'm going to go back to my dad, and he prepares this nice little speech. I'm going to tell him, I've sinned. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just make me one of your servants. Again, to, 
dishonor your father the way he did and squander your family's wealth the way he did would have been a crime in their society. Legally, the father would have grounds to have his son put to death. But he returns saying, I'm desperate and maybe my father will not let me back in the family, but I could at least be a servant, have some food, have a roof over my head. So I'm going to go home and see what happens. And here the story takes its most dramatic turn. Verse 20, he's going home, but while he was, a, he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, this is a speech coming, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Really is a beautiful picture. The father, while he was still a long way off, sees his younger son. Gives us the impression that he was often looking scanning the horizon, longing for the day when his son would come home, eager to embrace him. And this day, he sees what he's been hoping for. His son coming back on the horizon, and he's filled with compassion. And we, the, well, the first century audience, would be shocked by the father's response. New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg Put it this way, no self-respecting Middle Eastern male head of an estate would have disgraced himself by the undignified action of running to greet his son, nor would he have interrupted the son's speech before a full display of repentance or instantly commanded such a luxurious outpouring of affection for him. This is radical grace and compassion, completely unexpected, extravagant welcome that the father gives this son. I mean, running to him, again, running in that culture would not be a dignified thing for an older man to do. Even today, I don't know, if I picture my dad running, it just doesn't feel right. It seems strange. It'd have to be a very extreme circumstance for my dad to, to run out of joy. It would be undignified, even more so in that day. But the father runs to him, doesn't let him finish his prepared speech, and pours out these lavish gestures. Get the best coat, put it on his back. That coat probably would belong to the father himself. Get the ring, put it on his finger, probably a family signet ring, symbol of belonging to the family. Put it on his finger. Kill the fattened calf. Be a meal big enough to feed the entire village. That calf would have been prepared and saved for an incredible occasion, maybe a marriage feast, maybe a son coming of age. But the father says, now is the time. Invite the whole village. We're going to celebrate because this son of mine was dead, but now he's alive. 
You know, some of us wonder, how will God treat me if I return to him? Right? If I've strayed from God, if I have walked away from my faith, or maybe I never had faith in Jesus at all, how is God going to think about me, respond to me, if I start to draw near to him? Will I have to work to earn his love? Will I have to act right long enough to merit his favor? Will I have to really show I'm serious and follow all the church rules so that God will smile upon me? But here we get such a clear, simple picture of the Father's heart. What a perfect thing to remember on Father's Day what the heart of God looks like. God is longing for his children to come home. God's heart is full of compassion towards his children, full of love and grace for his children, even though we have sinned, even though we have strayed from him. He calls us, invites us home. This is especially helpful for those of us today that maybe can relate with the younger brother a little more. We can relate with the younger brother because maybe our lives have gone astray in some more obvious ways, some more visible ways. Maybe we've made a mess of our lives and there's frankly no hiding it, right, from ourselves or from others, whether it's about our past, maybe the sexual sin we currently deal with, maybe addictions that we're wrestling with or broken relationships in our past or in our present with our families. There's simply no hiding the fact sometimes that things haven't gone particularly well for us and we maybe wish we had made some choices differently in the past. For those of us in that place who can relate with this younger brother, wonder, how will God treat me if I come home? And this text tells us, with grace, with compassion, with love and forgiveness and open arms. No matter who we are, where we've been, what we've done, the grace of God is for you and me. And the Father says, come home. Now again, you might be here and like the younger son in the story, you might expect, well, I'm not going to be really welcomed into the family just yet. Maybe I could be a servant. Maybe I could like work my way up, right? Behave enough and then I'll gain some status eventually. But God shows us, no, you, you can't earn it. We can't work for it. It's not something we deserve. It's all by God's grace. He lavishes his love on us as sons and daughters and welcomes us into his family. Our dear friend and sister, Kathy Wright, showed me this quote a few months ago and I thought it was so appropriate for today. Often our assumption, maybe with religion, is I messed up, so my dad's gonna kill me. Anyone been there in real life? I messed up, my dad's gonna kill me. But, but the gospel, the good news, and what Jesus is trying to show us here is that rather it should be, I messed up, I need to call my dad. See the difference? I messed up, my dad's going to kill me. 
versus I messed up, so I need to call my dad. And that's what Jesus is trying to help us see. That in our sin, when we stray, we don't run from the Father, we run to God and he welcomes us. And this isn't at all, that quote isn't at all intended to downplay the seriousness of sin or the consequences of sin or the reality of judgment. The wages of sin is death. Our sin separates us from God. We're worthy of condemnation because of it. But God is, in addition to being a God of justice, he is a God of grace and mercy. And that's what Jesus wants us to see. God's heart and his posture towards us is one of mercy and forgiveness when we come to him. Now, it wouldn't be at all unusual for us today to think that this is a good place for the story to end. Right? The son returns home. The father welcomes him in. Point taken. Jesus, God, loves all of us, welcomes all of us home. No matter how far we strayed, he loves sinners and welcomes us home. And that's true. But there's actually more here in this parable than just that. And I would actually argue that we haven't seen the main point of the parable yet. We haven't reached the main emphasis that Jesus is trying to point out just yet. We have to read on in order to find it. So to understand this, in the verses to come, we have to look first back words a little bit at the context. In the beginning of chapter 15, if you have a Bible, you can see it there, verse 1, or uh, if you're following along on the screen, we have <clears throat> these verses here. This is the, the stage being set for this parable that we've been reading. Verse 1 of chapter 15 says this, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Now, right after those words, Jesus launches into a parable about a lost coin, then tells a second parable about a lost sheep. Maybe you've heard those before. And then this third parable about a lost son. So three parables about lost things being Found. And so those verses set the stage. And so we have to wonder why is Jesus telling these parables? What caused him to tell these particular stories? And the text says Jesus is hanging out with sinners, he's rubbing shoulders with unsavory people, he's welcoming people, eating with them, a sign of fellowship, a sign of friendship. He's eating with these morally questionable people. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law don't like that. And they're grumbling. They're muttering to themselves. Turn to your neighbor and mutter to them. Not sure we, not sure we like this. A little uncomfortable with how nice Jesus is being to those people. Over there, and these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, they were the, they were the good church-going people of the day. They were highly respected in their religious community. They were devout. 
They cared about truth. They cared about Scripture. They were very serious about their faith. So these religious, churchy people are the ones grumpy with Jesus. And that's what causes Jesus to tell this story. See, sometimes we hear this parable and we think, wow, Jesus is trying to warm the hearts of wayward sinners and invite them back to God. And this story certainly does that. It certainly does and should warm the heart of all of us in our sin and remind us of God's love and grace. But he's not pointing the parable at the younger brother types. He's pointing the parable at the religious leaders of his day, at the Pharisees who represent the older brother in this story. And so what's he saying to them? Verse 25, you have to see the last main character of the story to understand. Jesus goes on, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the the servants, and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So we're introduced here to this second son, this older brother in the family. Is anyone here the oldest in your family? Oldest sibling? Okay. Anybody here sometimes not very pleased with how your parents treat your younger siblings? Yeah? Okay. Can relate. When this older brother hears about what his dad has done for his younger brother, rather than celebrating with his father, rather than rejoicing that his brother is home, he does what in verse 28? He gets angry. He doesn't want to celebrate doesn't want to go to the party. Gets worse in verse 28 as we read on. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So not only does this older brother keep quiet and stay out in the field and refuse to go into the party, that would have been embarrassing enough for the father, but he comes closer and engages in this argument with his dad, likely in view of the party guests, arguing with him, and he starts in verse 29, not very graciously, with, look, and that's not like, look, dad, it's like, look, you, let me tell you something, here's the problem here, I mean, to do this, again, in an ancient culture, based on honor and shame, to not address your father with the title, Father, something gentle and kind, but to lead with, look, you, horribly offensive. 
And for this, the father could have disowned the older brother or beaten the older brother. And so now his second son is bringing shame upon the family. So I have to wonder, what is going on now in this older brother's heart? We're going to spend most of next week in these few verses here looking at the older brother. But briefly, now we can see that he is scandalized by his father's grace. He says, my brother doesn't deserve this. In verse 29, I'm the one who's been working hard. I've been slaving for you for years. I haven't broken the rules. I've kept them diligently. But what do I have to show for it? Where's my party? Where's my goat? Where's my celebration? No, I just work hard and have nothing to show for it. Meanwhile, my brother comes home. He squandered your wealth, brought shame upon our family, made you out to be a fool, and he gets this party? He can't comprehend his father's grace, his father's compassion. Now, some will look at this and say, well, the older brother is just kind of mean-spirited, just needs to be a little kinder to his younger brother, love his younger brother a little bit more. It's just kind of a minor issue there. And those things are true, but there's a more fundamental problem with the older brother a more fundamental issue going on in his heart. And it's that he's lost too. His heart is far from his father's too, just like his younger brother. And so this parable is not about one lost son. It's about two lost sons. Both of the brothers are lost separated from God, even though this older brother stayed home, he's just as distant from his father's heart as his younger brother. And that's the key to this whole parable. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, here then is Jesus' radical redefinition of what is wrong with us. Nearly everyone defines sin as breaking a list of rules. Jesus, though, shows us that a man who has violated virtually nothing on the list of moral misbehaviors, that's the older brother, can be every bit as spiritually lost as the most profligate, immoral person. Saying this older brother, even though he's violated virtually nothing on the list of sins, these obvious, clear, crossing-the-line sorts of sins can be just as lost as his younger brother. See, the older brother was obedient. He worked hard. He stayed home. I mean, by outward appearances, he was doing everything right. He was doing everything his father asked him, everything he was supposed to be doing. But Jesus is trying to help us see that sin is not just about these rules we break or these lines we cross on the surface that are visible. It includes that. But with sin, there's a deeper reality going on below the surface in our hearts. 
the older brother's heart was distant from his father. He was keeping the rules. On the surface, things looked okay. But he wasn't motivated by a love for his father. He wasn't keeping the rules because he truly embraced his father and loved his father and appreciated the grace that his father had shown him. No, he was keeping the rules, but his motivation in his heart was self-serving. It was so he could get something out of it. Right? And when he doesn't get his goat and when he doesn't get his party, it shows, it comes out. He's bitter with his father. I worked hard. I earned it. You owe me, God. So on the surface, things can look okay. But the older brother shows us that there are two ways to be lost. The reason this is so important for us is there's a lot of older brothers in churches. There's a lot of older brothers in churches. Some of us come to church, we jump through the hoops, we read our Bibles, maybe we go to a small group. Maybe we're here pretty regularly. Maybe we serve. Maybe we give. It's possible to do all of those things and still not truly know God. It's possible to jump through all those hoops and not do it because we love God and want to walk with Him and enjoy Him. It's for our own purposes, for how it makes us look. Maybe then God will bless us if we keep the rules and and play His game just right. And I've been there. I, I can look back at places in my life. High school, involved in my, ministry, in my youth group. College, involved in our campus ministry. Even seminary, there have been times where I look back at my life and I really think about where my heart was in those moments, what was motivating me. It wasn't always because I loved God and wanted to know Him and please Him and walk with Him. Often there were other factors mixed in there. I wanted to be seen a certain way. I wanted to maybe to be successful, be liked, climb the ladder. My heart wasn't motivated by a love for God. I think often in church we can relate with this. And this is really dangerous because the younger brother's sin, it's, it's obvious. It's clear. He ran away from home. He's living recklessly, squandering his wealth, morally questionable all over the point. It's it's easy to identify. And so it's really easy for a younger brother to take a look at their life and say, yeah, I'm not living the way God's called me to. I've ran away from God. I know that. But for an older brother, our sin, it's often buried beneath layers of moral behavior performance, church attendance. And it's not easy to see. If you're sick and you know it, you'll go to a doctor. But if you don't think you're sick, you won't go see the doctor. And so we as church people, people who come here, anyone who comes here regularly, we need to learn the practice of digging deep into our hearts and really reflecting honestly, are we motivated by a love for God? Have we truly embraced the gospel and realized God's heart for us? And are we living to please him or are we trying to earn our way? Are we trying to make God owe us something by our 
performance? Older brothers and younger brothers alike, the only answer to older brother syndrome, or to younger brother syndrome for that matter, is the gospel. It's the only thing that's going to heal our hearts. The grace of God, the love of God, that's the only thing that's going to transform us and help us truly know God and truly walk with him. It's the good news of Jesus, right? That we have been forgiven of our sins through his life, death, and resurrection, through faith in him, not through our performance, through our obedience. So when we see Jesus and understand the gospel, our hearts are softened. We realize God's love for us. And see, that's the radical shift that Jesus wants his audience to get. God's love for you is not based on your performance. That's what he's trying to say. God's love for you is not based on your performance. One more time for the people in the back. God's love for you is not based on your performance. And that's what both brothers thought. Right? The younger brother. Man, I've messed up. I haven't performed very well. God doesn't love me. My father's not going to love me. He's not going to welcome me back. And the older brother. I have performed. I've checked the boxes. I've done great. So my father owes me. My performance has been great. And so I must be in good with him. And Jesus shows us both brothers are wrong. They're both lost. But they're both loved. So we see in the text that the parable doesn't have a nice, neat ending with a bow on it. Jesus doesn't resolve the story for us. Actually, as the parable ends, the father goes out, pleads with this older brother to come into the party. And we don't know if he does or not. We don't know how the older brother responds. And that's intentional. Jesus leaves it open-ended. So his audience, these pious Pharisees, have an opportunity to consider, will I join the party and celebrate God's grace for me and for others, or will I stay outside? You know, at the end of the parable, there's this feast, this celebration, where people are coming together at the Father's table. We get a little taste of that when we celebrate communion, which we're about to do. We come to the table, to God's table, and it's a foretaste of the feast in heaven when we will forever eat and drink and celebrate with God and his people one day. And so communion is a way for us to look forward, but also an opportunity for us to look back. And so as we take communion this morning, we reflect on the cost, on what it required to welcome us home, and that was the death of Jesus for our sins. And so we take the bread and the cup, which shows us the body and blood of Jesus, broken and shed for you and for me, so that whoever would believe in him could be forgiven, welcomed home, reconciled to the God who loves them. And so as the music plays, we're going to come forward and invite you to participate with us. Uh, if you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come forward, even if you're visiting or um, from out of town. Uh, we practice an open table, which means if you have put your faith in Jesus, 
come join with us. And if not, we encourage you to just stay seated and reflect on what we've talked about this morning. Again, the music's going to play. We have gluten-free elements, so no one has to worry there. And uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then come forward. Father, we love you, and we really are amazed at your grace and your kindness to us, that you, you welcome us home when we're lost. Lord, we need your grace, all of us. And so we thank you, Jesus, for your body, for your blood, how you died for us, for our forgiveness. We celebrate you as our Savior and King. And we look forward to the day when you return and we will feast with you and all your people in your kingdom forever. It's in your name we pray. Amen.